Have you ever wanted to play the perfect tabletop game where story beats run smoothly and there's no awkward pauses between dice rolls? Yeah, me too. But since that's impossible, I did the next best thing and novelized my Witcher tabletop game to showcase the story in its cleanest form. The result is this podcast. I'm Jacob Gerstel, and this is Tales from the Witcher. Part audiobook, part actual play, part serialized adventure, and a whole new way to vicariously enjoy tabletop games. Welcome to the world of The Witcher, where monsters roam freely and the continent is once again at war. If you were hoping to follow the plight of Gale to Rivia, however, I'm not going to be doing that. Instead, I offer you the story of a not-so-merry band of degenerates who are making their way across the continent. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. To act otherwise. 9. The harpies screeched, took to the air with their winged arms, and swooped towards Carmignola before he had finished scrambling up the rock. Fortunately, Sevo of Kavir barreled towards the monsters, silver sword in hand. The harpies careened upward, just out of the witcher's reach, but he tossed the sword into his four-fingered left hand and made a few motions with his right hand. He forked his index and pinky finger, and shot a shower of fiery sparks from his hand. More screeches, as the sparks caught two of the harpy's wings. Carmignola saw fire lick up the greasy feathers that blanketed their gangly arms. These two harpies dropped to the earth, and folded their wings up behind them like a bird. Zevo beheaded one quickly. The remaining four harpies circled the witcher in the air, like carrion on a carcass. And five harpies remained. Carmignola heaved himself up onto the plateau with a gasp. Ethramel followed, but wasted no time jumping to his feet and sprinting past the doctor. Everyone but Carmignola, it seemed, was eager to enter the fray. The sorcerer drew the staff strapped to his back and twirled it over his head. He shouted in his elven language and slammed the butt of the staff onto the rocky plateau. Carmignola braced himself, expecting the rocks to crack or rumble or explode beneath his feet. Instead, a second Ethramel appeared out of nowhere, though appeared didn't seem to be the right word. Shimmered seemed closer, but still not wholly accurate. Since when could he do that, Carmignola thought. He blinked, and suddenly there was a third Ethramel, next to the other two. Then there was a fourth, then a fifth, then a sixth, all appearing from nowhere. Glamour, Carmignola muttered. He remembered the sorcerer Vedard telling him of it when he was a child in Sidorus. Glamour, the old wizard had said, was the ability to create an illusion that looked real, but never was. Looking at the seven sorcerers that scrambled around the Witcher, Carmignola wasn't so sure it was an illusion. He couldn't tell the copies from the original. Nor could the harpies, it seemed. The four airborne monsters swooped and shredded four Ethramels with their blackened talons and each time, the Ethramel they hit disappeared into purple smoke. This created some breathing room for the Witcher, who quickly gutted the second grounded harpy before turning his attention back to the sky, and four harpies remained. Carmignola drew his dagger, but Jeremiah stood next to him with his crossbow already pressed against his shoulder. He closed one eye, held his breath, and shot. The bolt splintered into three as it launched towards one of the harpies. 
She was preparing to strike another Ethramel, but spread her wings and changed her direction mid-flight. Son of a bitch, Jeremiah snarled. They have excellent control, you must admit, though the Witcher was right. They're not nearly as beautiful as the songs made me believe. Arthur of Garamore stepped forward and aimed his handheld Gabriel crossbow at the same harpy. He similarly closed his eyes, held his breath, and fired. The bolt did not split, but it buried itself deep in the harpy's breastplate, just above her heart. The harpy screeched and flapped her wings as she plummeted to the earth, gray feathers hanging in the air for a few moments before languidly drifting down. It reminded Carmignola of the time his sister Sarah had killed a pigeon at the docks with a homemade sling, and three harpies remained. Carmignola jogged towards the fray, resolved to do what he could against the monsters. He wished he had bought a crossbow back in Mahakam, wished he knew how to shoot a crossbow for that matter. He didn't go ten paces before Zevo made the same signs with his right hand, and another gout of sparks covered another harpy in flames. She grounded herself, but had no time to hop away from the witcher. Zevo even growled like an animal as he rent her open. And two harpies remained. Ethramel lifted his staff from the ground, and the two remaining faux Ethramels disappeared like smoke in the wind. He gave another twirl of his staff, muttered again an elder speech, and thrust it towards the sky. A stream of fire burst from the tip of the staff. Not a spray of sparks like Zevo, but full-bodied flame. Carmignola felt a wave of heat buffet his face. The two remaining harpies changed their direction mid-flight, but the fire took up too much space in the air. Their backs were alight, and they, like their companions, took to the ground. Unfortunately, the sorcerer wasn't as quick as the witcher. He dropped his staff as he drew his elven falchion, but not before the harpies circled him, one at his front and one at his back. Ethramel swung at the harpy in front and sliced her from shoulder to pelvis. Her beak opened, but no screech came out. The only sound was the quiet, rhythmic pulsing of her heart as blood flowed out like water from a stream, and one harpy remained. The lone survivor, with her back still on fire, launched at Ethramel with her claws outstretched. Ethramel turned on his heel, but not fast enough to escape as one of the gnarled talons got caught beneath his breastplate and sunk into flesh. The sorcerer grunted and stepped back on instinct just as the harpy pulled away. That's how the talon broke off. Ethramel and the harpy shrieked in tandem. Carmignola ran towards the stumbling harpy and thrust his dagger at her neck. He was surprised at how easily the blade sunk into flesh. The harpy gurgled and collapsed. And no harpies remained. Damn it, Ethramel growled as he fished around under his shiny new breastplate. He grimaced as he pulled the tip of the harpy's talon, slick with blood, from beneath his collarbone, and tossed it onto the dusty ground. Carmignola cleaned his blade, and tried not to look as the witcher vivisected the monsters for anything he could sell. I imagine a griffin is harder to kill than a harpy, he said to no one. Ethramel massaged his collar. You tell me, do you think a lion's harder to kill than a sparrow? Carmignola went to inspect and clean Ethramel's wound. It wasn't deep, thankfully, and he was patched up in no time at all. I must ask, what is that cartridge on your crossbow? Arthur said to Jeremiah. The craftsman hefted his repeating crossbow proudly. It stores extra bolts that get loaded after one is shot. Arthur blinked. As in automatically? As in automatically. Impressive. Arthur rubbed his stubbly chin. Do you think I could get one? Jeremiah shook his head. 
You have to be a member of the Church of the Eternal Fire to get one of these. Sorry, friend. What an odd specification. I'm guessing it has something to do with your deal with the lovely Mother Lana. Arthur shrugged and clipped his handheld crossbow to his belt. He drew his lute and played while they waited for Zevo to finish dissecting the harpies. The Witcher didn't take long, but Carmagnola would have thought he had dawdled for three hours the way he impatiently growled, Let's keep moving. Beatrix and Nicola are still ahead of us. The plateau they stood on didn't offer any path up the mountain. Carmagnola looked at the rocky wall, a little steeper than what they had just climbed, and sighed. Well, after you, Zevo. The Witcher led, and the doctor followed. Carmagnola's fingers ached as he gripped pockmarks in the stone wall to haul himself up. His ankle burned as he slipped more than once when trying to find his footing. His arms quivered with exhaustion as he pulled himself up onto one small plateau after another. His eyes stung with the sweat that matted his hair and face. And still, he climbed. He didn't want Beatrix to kill the griffin any more than Zevo did. He recalled their argument the night before, how Beatrix seemed to take no responsibility for how she acted, both a decade ago when they broke up, and two years ago when she tried to murder him. She didn't seem to care that he had spent the last few years of his life looking over his shoulder, afraid that his cursed ex-lover would torture and kill him. Rather than ruminate on her shortcomings, she found a new partner and went on doing exactly what she used to, never sparing him a second thought. So even though every inch of Carmagnola's body ached, and even though his mind was worried he'd be too exhausted to fight the griffin, he pressed on. His pride would not allow him to act otherwise. Finally, after two hours, but what felt like ten, they reached a wider plateau with a rough path that snaked up and around the mountain. Zevo sniffed at the air, the griffins close, likely nesting a little further up. Without waiting for the others to catch their breath, he said, I'll scout ahead. Wait here. The witcher followed the curving path and disappeared. Carmagnola mopped sweat from his brow and looked around. Only Jeremiah looked as exhausted as Carmagnola felt from their climb. Ethramel and Arthur, though soaked in sweat, were breathing steadily. Both were checking their weapons. Zevo popped around the corner and motioned for everyone to follow. You'll want to see this. The Witcher was right, of course. Just around the bend on the narrow path, sitting against the rock wall, was Nicola of Moen. His skin looked waxy, and his hair was clumped with dirt and sweat. One of Nicola's hands was pressed against his side. His free hand rested on his lap and was stained a rusty red. Beatrix was kneeling beside him, inspecting Nicola's wound. What happened to him? Carmagnola asked out of reflex. His years of doctoring kicked in, and he found himself kneeling beside Beatrix and inspecting the gash in Nicola's side. The wound ran long, from the bottom of Nicola's ribcage to his pelvis in a downward slant, and the wound ran deep. He wasn't bleeding excessively, but he was bleeding consistently. Carmagnola produced a jar of numbing herbs and began rubbing it on the wound. Nicola winced. We tried to take the griffin unaware. It sniffed us out and attacked before we could draw our swords. Had to get out of there quick. Got this holding it off while B got away. Nicola grinned, and Carmagnola saw his teeth were also bloodstained. Guess we were too optimistic thinking two people could kill a griffin. You have to be realistic about these sorts of things. Hush now, Beatrix said, gently wiping a strand of hair away from Nicola's eyes. She asked Carmagnola how the wound looked. Like shit, Carmagnola thought. 
he cleared his throat and said, He needs proper medical treatment. The numbing herbs will dull the pain, but that won't last for more than a few hours. Can you walk? I'll have to. Nicola grimaced as he stood, clutching his side. He towered over Carmagnola, but the doctor thought he would collapse if he so much as tapped him. Beatrix gripped Carmagnola's shoulder and walked him a few paces away. Be clear with me, Carmagnola, she whispered. Will he survive the trip back? Carmagnola thought to lie, or say nothing at all. After all, he owed Beatrix less than nothing. But he was still a doctor, and he settled on the truth. I don't know. If he gets proper care in bed Mena, he's likely to survive. He just has to get there. He saw a familiar expression take over Beatrix's face. She used to look that way when he forced her to rest after a long day of marching. She looked that way when he patched her up when they killed a pack of rot fiends in Angerin, and she took an infected bite to the ankle. It was a look of begrudging acceptance, a look that came when she was forced to accept help. Come down with us, Carmagnola, Beatrix said quietly. I'd feel better if a doctor was with us the whole way back. Carmagnola did not hesitate to answer. He looked further up the path and said, I'm sorry, but I cannot. I have a monster that needs slaying. Anger flashed in Beatrix's eyes, but it dissipated just as fast as it came. She could brook no counterargument, Carmagnola knew. After all, she had made the same argument to him about the supposed Bruja all those years ago. Very well, Beatrix said with a curt nod. She brushed past the doctor and put Nicola's arm around her shoulder for support. We're heading back to town. Nicola nodded and said to the others, Be careful when you get to the griffin's nest. She's sure to be on alert and is highly protective of her eggs. Arthur's mouth was open as he watched Beatrix and Nicola hobble down the path. Surely you should go with them, he said to Carmagnola. You're a doctor, by the gods. It's your job to help the injured. Carmagnola did not feel like explaining his complicated history with Beatrix to Arthur of Garamore. So he shrugged and said, Our job right now is to kill that griffin before it hurts anyone else. To do anything less is wrong. We're wasting time, Zevo said impatiently. Let's keep moving. Arthur stayed where he was as the others started back up the path, mouth still open. I'm afraid, he finally announced, I will not be joining you. I'm heading back with Beatrix and Nicola. Carmagnola stopped and turned around. Everyone, including Zevo, followed suit. Jeremiah asked, And why's that? Your finest ballad yet is about to be composed. It would be a fine ballad, yes. And it's my job to create the best art that I can, the troubadour said. Just like it was Beatrix's job to kill the griffin. Yet she decided to turn her back on her job to help the one she loves. That, my friends, is more powerful than any ballad I'd compose about a griffin. So I must go with them, and help them in any way that I can. I'll see you back in town. Zevo grunted and continued up the path. Ethramel followed, then Jeremiah. Carmagnola stood, watching Arthur turn his back and head towards Beatrix and Nicola. He thought for a moment to follow the troubadour, to overcome what Beatrix could not a decade ago, to show Beatrix that he could set their history aside and make sure Nicola got back safely to Bedsinapani's Mena. But, in the end, Carmagnola continued up the path. His pride would not allow him to act otherwise. 10. Carmagnola Carmagnola sighed. He was having a pleasant dream. He was back in Oxenfurt and drinking with his chums. 
He tried to roll onto his side, but his body wouldn't move. Carmagnola, wake up. He opened his eyes to see Beatrix sitting on top of him. The sunlight dappled her face. She gently poked his chest. I'm awake, Carmagnola said in a groggy voice. His arms were trapped under Beatrix's legs. I thought we were sleeping in today. I decided against it. Beatrix smiled. Please tell me you can smell that? Carmagnola did, now that his senses were returning. He smelled pork, mingled with fresh herbs. He saw two plates of bacon and diced potatoes on the nightstand. He looked back at Beatrix, who looked quite proud of herself. You cooked it? he asked. Of course, Beatrix said. Her face flushed slightly. Well, the innkeeper helped me some, just with the cooking part. I cut the potatoes myself. The doctor blinked. He'd never known Beatrix to cook anything. She was more a grab-what-she-could-for-the-road type of person. They'd practically lived on tavern food and trail rations since they took to monster hunting. Well, can I eat it? he asked. Or are you going to sit on my arms until they're numb? Not yet. We'll eat in a second. But first... She produced a small box from behind her back. Carmagnola lifted his head a little. Beatrix's cheeks flushed again. I know we haven't talked about it, but I just thought since... You know, since we met a year ago, that I'd... Beatrix trailed off. Carmagnola smiled. Would you mind getting off my arm so I can see what's inside? Oh, sorry. Beatrix rolled off Carmagnola and onto her side of the bed. She handed him the box. A carved wooden ship was inside, painted blue and white, the colors of his kingdom. Since you're from Sidorus and all, Beatrix said, thought I might remind you of home. I know we didn't talk about it, but I wanted... Where are you going? Carmagnola stood up and walked over to his rucksack. They traveled light, ready to leave at any moment. There was a rugged danger to it that Carmagnola liked. He knelt down and produced a small box of his own. Turns out I had the same idea, he said. Carmagnola! Beatrix excitedly snatched the box and opened it. A thin, silver chain was coiled inside. She held it up in the light. Extra protection for your neck, Carmagnola grinned. The necklace likely wouldn't withstand a firm tug. You know, in case a monster ever pierces your gorget and I'm not around to... Beatrix threw her arms around Carmagnola's neck and kissed him. That'll do it for this episode of Tales from the Witcher. This podcast is written and produced by Jacob Gerstel. The Witcher novels are by Andrzej Sapkowski, The Witcher games are by CD Projekt Red, and The Witcher tabletop RPG is by R. Talsorian Games. The music is by Eric Matias at soundimage.org. Be sure to leave a rating and a review, and to spread the word of this podcast far and wide. You can follow the podcast at TalesWitcherPod on X, or at TalesFromTheWitcher.Buzzsprout.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you again next week.